Romans 8, 31 through 37. Beginning with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Father, we are here nicely dressed and with our hair combed and no blood on our faces. The day is coming, whether by disease or persecution or accident, we will look like a slaughtered lamb. No one will think of our clothes, we'll have on a hospital gown or be stripped. There will be gashes or tubes, and we won't be so attractive. It is coming. And I pray, O oh God, that Paul's merciful help, God's, your merciful help in this text to get us ready with one glorious promise after another, would take effect in our lives. Whether we're being set on a journey of 18 years or this morning coming to the climax of a journey of 18 years, you would mightily, powerfully establish your people with these truths. So help me to be faithful to this word now and give ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to feel with appropriate affections what is revealed in these verses, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to focus on verse 34 this morning. And as we begin our focus, I want to be very clear about what God's design is for us in these verses especially verses 31 following. I would put it like this. God's design for us in these verses is that you would be unshakably secure for the sake of suffering in the Christ-exalting path of obedience. His design is your security for the sake of suffering in the Christ-exalting path of obedience. The point of these verses is to build into your life God-wrought, blood-bought security to help you suffer well. Let's rehearse. 
Verse 28. Everything is going to work together for your good, you who love God. Verse 30. Your final glorification is already secured for you. Verse 31. Nobody can successfully be against you. Verse 32. He will give you everything you need. Verse 33. No one can make any charge stick against you in heaven or on earth. And today, verse 34. Since Christ died, was raised, is at the right hand, and intercedes for you, no one can condemn you. What's the design of all that spectacular, breathtaking assurance and good news? What's he up to? Why is he lavishing us with these kinds of assurances? And the answer is to get us ready for verse 35 and 9-11. Whenever it happens in your life. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ that I've been talking about in all these lavish ways? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And that's where we're going to be next Sunday morning. I'm not going to talk about that verse this morning. That's next Sunday for the 9-11 remembrance. But the point of the unit is that the massive power and the massive wisdom and the massive love of God are all designed not to work your escape from those things, but your triumph in and through them. That's what he's been trying to say. In the sword, let's go backwards here, all right, in verse 35. In the sword that cuts off your head and perhaps pierces your heart. In the peril that sweeps away your family and leaves you alone. In the nakedness that shames you, perhaps in the rape or the prison yard. In the famine that leaves you and your bloated children with nothing but draped bones. In the persecution that blocks all your professional dreams and advances and perhaps burns your house down. In the distress or the calamity that makes you or leaves you paraplegic. Or takes away your life savings in the tribulation that wrings your soul till you wonder whether there will be a drop of faith left in it. The design of this text is to so deepen and make firm and unshakable the God-wrought, blood-bought security that you will suffer well in these seven kinds of suffering. The point of this text is so that when it comes, you won't curse God. You won't question God. You won't reproach God. You won't forsake God. You'll trust God. You'll hold fast to God. You'll be satisfied with God. And you'll sing. Oh, we have so many hymns you could sing. 
because most of them were born out of verse 35. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. When all around my soul gives way, then he is all my hope and stay. Or may God so use this text to build a church so that when the Job experience comes, we will do what Job did. He tore his clothes. He shaved his head in shame. He fell down on the ground. And worshiping, he said, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, to have a church full of people like that. That's what this text is about. This text is about massive, God-wrought, blood-bought security. So that we will suffer well. That's what this text is about. The design is not. Now hear this, Americans. The design of this text is not to add eternal security as a layer on a life devoted to earthly comfort. The design of this text is to promise you a security that frees you from the pursuit of earthly comfort. Don't don't say, oh, good, along with all my American dreams of ease and comfort and wealth and prosperity and distance from pain. I can now layer eternal security on. Woo! This feels really good. So many in the church embrace the gospel like that. It isn't meant, verse 35, will not let that stand. That is not what this text is about. This text is about not a layer on top of your other pursuits for comfort, but a freedom from bondage to the pursuit of ease and comfort. Oh, what joy. And healthy, holy freedom Americans forfeit by devoting themselves to comfort and ease. While the world, poor, sick, oppressed, loved, unloved, unconverted, perishes. You got a gift, you got a secular calling. Dream the secular calling for the nations, for the poor, for the uneducated, for those who have no health care, for those who are outside the range of the gospel. Dream your secular calling for the nations, not for the pad. We're Christians. This world is not our home. We're going to suffer. We're called to lay down our lives for the nations. For the poor, the nations here, the nations there. You're not rich for yourself. God has blessed you to be a blessing, wealthy Americans. 
Oh, the preciousness of these verses. If we would see the health and joy they were designed to bring us. Let me sum up the design like this. All this is to show you the design of the verse, and now we'll get into it. I'll sum it up like this. The design of all these verses, I could go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, I think, but let's just take 31 to 37. The design of these verses is massive security for merciful service through many sufferings. That's the design. Massive, unshakable, God-wrought, blood-bought security for the sake of merciful, poured-out lives of service through many sufferings. Verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So you see, he's asking a question. He, all the way through this text, he's asking these questions. He doesn't answer them. He, he considers the answer to be patently obvious. He expects us to enter in to the question, provide the answer out of our own soul, and then he gives the foundation of the answer that we've provided And so the answer clearly is, who is to condemn? Nobody. Why? And now the answer is different from last week's. The question was the same last week in different words. Last week it was, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And his answer was, it is God who justifies. And now he asks the same question with different words. He says, and who's going to condemn you, Christian? You, Christian, with massive security, who is going to condemn you? Answer, nobody. And instead of saying, God justifies you, and therefore there's no condemnation, verse 1, he says, a step lower, the reason God can justify the ungodly by faith alone, and that there's a gospel in the world for the, for the sinner that you know or are, is because Christ died, rose, reigns, intercedes. Those four things. There's a triumph in verse 34 in the ministry of Jesus that he means us to feel as the foundation of our justification. Let me draw out something else that I shared with the the elders and deacons downstairs. Remember last week when I got to the point where I wanted to give the foundation and I said, Who should bring any charge against God's elect? We're justified. And I said, Wrong. That's not what it says. It says, who should bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The focus is on the justifier and the kind of being who justifies us. That is, he is the imperial court, the supreme court. There's no appeal against you after God says not guilty. That's the point. Now, when I got to verse 34, I was meditating on it. I said, hmm, I think he does the same thing here. Here... The question is, who is to condemn? And he might have said, Christ died, Christ rose, Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and Christ intercedes. And that is not what he said. He said it in a very particular grammatical way. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. Why does he say it like that? Just like in verse 33, he said, God is the one who justifies. And then he keeps up that same grammatical focus all the way through with two substantival participles, which won't mean anything to you probably, and two relative pronouns. Because the focus at every one of those four is not on the action primarily, but the person who did it. Now, I know you can't separate the two, but the reason I'm stressing this is because as I dip into each of these four, I want us to feel it the way Paul wrote it. And the way he wrote it was personal about Jesus, not impersonal about action performed by a Jesus. Who's going to condemn you, Christian? Answer, nobody is going to condemn you. Reason, there's a certain kind of person who died for you. There's a certain kind of person who rose for you. There's a certain kind of person who's at the right hand of the Father for you. And there's a certain kind of person who intercedes for you. Know that person. That's the point in these four things. Listen carefully, those of you who are oppressed by the devil. I'll read you a quote from John Stott. When he got through his brief exposition of this verse, this is what John Stott wrote. We can therefore confidently challenge the universe with all its inhabitants, human and demonic. Who is he that condemns? There will never be an answer. When I read that, I thought maybe I should pause here and apply this to Satan and his harassments in your life and his oppressions in your life. Some of you don't even know you experience opposition from Satan and others of you are so beat up and battered that that it You can hear voices in your house and see things on the ceiling. Now, here's what I want to say to those who are oppressed and battered, whether you know it or not, by the devil. Get blunt and get courageous and get tough with the devil. Don't be a wimp. Around the devil. Stott says, you can challenge the demonic hosts with verse 34, and he's right. So, you say to Satan, Satan, and I, I'm quite aware that as I'm writing this yesterday, Satan and demons are all around my desk. Watching me prepare to say this. And I believe in these critters. Critters! That's all. Roaches! I believe them. I make fun of them a lot. And I'm sure they don't like it, especially when it's done in public. And so I, I ask for your prayers. Because I hate the devil and his hosts. And I love it when Jesus steps up to the plate and does for me what he does in verse 34. So I say, this is what I'm commending to you now. 
whether it's a small temptation or a massive assault that shakes the foundations of your house, say, Satan, whom do you put forward to condemn me? Nobody. Not one of your little creepy critters. Nobody can you put forward to condemn me. Get in his face and state your case with authority. Tell him four things. Christ died for me, Satan. Jesus Christ rose from the dead for me, Satan. Christ is the all-seeing, all-powerful, all-ruling one at the right hand of your maker, Satan. And Christ is interceding for me as my advocate with Almighty God. Be gone, little, created, dependent, defeated, ruled devil. And hear this, one last, one last sentence you say to him. Hear this, little devil. If you kill me, which my father may let you do, know this, in that moment, my soul is freed and you lose. And your misery is multiplied. And I win. And a thousand people follow behind me. Blessed with my blood. Satan, little Satan, get out of here. Get out of my house. Get out of my kids' lives. Get out of my head, Satan. The truth of God is not given to you in the Bible for nothing. Life is war. Take your sword and wield it. Four things, four things in verse 34. Who bring any charge against God's elect? That's verse 33. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus died, rose, reigns at the right hand, and intercedes. So let's look at these four. And remember how I'm going to do it. At every one of these four, just a little snapshot, each one deserves a sermon and a book. We're going to take about two or three minutes on each one. When I say it, I'm going to say, oh, Christian, or perhaps seeker in this room, know the one who died. Know the one who rose. Know the one who is at the right hand. Know the one who's interceding. In other words, when you hear the deeds of Christ, Know this Christ for you. One of the elders prayed this morning as we were getting ready to come up here. We've never seen you. We haven't. So it says in 1 Peter 1, having not seen him, you love him. And though having not seen him, you rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. The, the New Testament knows we 20th century people long to see something and we don't see him. So how do you know him? And the answer is, by the revelation of himself through his word and the spirit. And now we have a word and you have four pictures of your Jesus. You can advance in knowing him this morning. You can know him deeply, sweetly, personally, powerfully. If you would take each of these four snapshots and meditate on them this afternoon.
Number one, know him as the one who gave his life for you. Now, the reason I say gave his life for you instead of quoting the actual text died is to make explicit that he did it willingly. A bullet from God was aimed at your head. The holy God in wrath had his gun of judgment pointed at your head, ready to blow your brains out forever in justice. Jesus did not stumble in front of the bullet. He jumped in front of the bullet. Is that clear? So I I use the words gave his life instead of died just to make that plain. Because it says in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to finish it. Give his life a ransom for many. He gave it. He jumped in front of the wrath of God and averted it so that the smile of God rests upon you today in Christ rather than anger. So, let me say it this way. Know him as the one who gave his life for the ungodly not those who deserve his love. Know him as the one who gave his life to complete a life of perfect obedience so that it could be imputed to you as your righteousness. Know him as the one who gave his life to forgive all of our sins. Know him as the one who gave his life to become a curse for us so that the curse of God could be removed. Know him as the one who gave his life to absorb our condemnation and avert the wrath of God. Know him as the one who gave his life to prove that God is just when he justifies the ungodly who simply have faith in Jesus. And know him as the one who died and gave his life to prove the love of God. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So know the Son giving his life for you in order to prove the love of the Father for you. There's so much about him to be known in his dying. The death of Jesus is the most important and central act in history. And it is inexhaustible. Know him there. You know the reason we have four Gospels with four long passion narratives at the end of those Gospels and not just one? It's so that you can know him from all kinds of angles. Just imagine yourself, and here you are yourself, but just imagine yourself in the first century about mm, ten years after the death of Jesus, say up in Antioch. You'd never heard of this Jesus and maybe only heard a little bit about Jews. And along comes a preacher from Jerusalem preaching, Jesus, Estin, Kyrios. Jesus is Lord. Who's Jesus? He's one of the gods. You don't have a clue. What would you, what would you ask? What would be your first questions? Who are you talking about? In America, we, we kind of assume a lot in our evangelism. We should assume less. But we have four Gospels. Those Gospels came into being because remembrances had to be preserved so answers could be given to 
Well, what did he teach? And what did he do? And how did he relate to kids? And what do you think about women? And what was his attitude towards disease? And I mean, the questions would just tumble and tumble about who is this Christ? And we have these gospels so that we can know him. And the central thing about him in those gospels is that he died for us. And it is inexhaustible what he did when he died. There are so many ways to say it, so many ways to see it, so many depths to plumb and heights to fly into. So, Christian, seeker, know that he gave his life for you in order to prove the love of God. Number two, know him as the one who was raised from the dead by the Father. I add to the text by the Father to stress the passive voice of the verb. I don't think that's an accident. Why didn't he say, it is Christ who died for you, who rose again, who is at the right hand, who intercedes? Why did he put a passive verb in there? It is Christ who died, was raised. And the reason, I believe, is to emphasize that even though... The son did take his life back, according to John 10. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down, and if I lay it down, I can take it again. So I don't have to bring the father in here if I don't think the text wants me to bring the father in here, because Jesus raised himself from the dead. But he didn't do it alone. And this text stresses he was raised. By whom? By the glory of the Father, chapter 6. He was raised by the glory of the Father. Why is that important? It's important because when the Father looked down on that grave, having poured out all of his wrath that we deserved on his Son, and he saw his Son moldering in the grave. You know what he felt? Massive. Satisfaction for what the Son had achieved in averting His wrath from the people of His love, in absorbing the curse of the law, in completing, finally, one man is righteous. And His satisfaction in the work of the Son and the person of the Son is so great that He said, enough, and raised Him from. It is finished. And so the resurrection is the vindication of all that the death of Christ means for you. That's why it's so crucial to realize that the Father raised him from the dead. Because it's the Father for whom he died. I wrote a chapter one time called, Did Christ Die for Us or for God? And of course the answer is yes. He died for our sins and for his father's righteousness and glory. And the father looks down and he sees his righteousness vindicated and his wrath averted and his curse absorbed and all of his demands of the law fulfilled. And he says, enough, son, come on. And he raises him from the dead, which now opens the way for the last two points of this verse to be true. Because without the first two, there'd be no last two. So let's look at these last two briefly. Thirdly, know him as the one who is at the right hand of God. What are we to hear in that? Did you know that of all the Psalms, 
One verse is quoted in the New Testament more than any other verse. Way more. And do you know what psalm it is? It's Psalm 110, verse 1. Where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until all of your enemies are a footstool for your feet. God says to David's Messiah, Jesus, sit here until the enemies are subdued. That was the most commonly quoted psalm in the early church. And that's the echo behind right hand. If you heard the words in the early church, Jesus is at the right hand, you'd think Psalm 110.1 and you'd finish it until enemies are subdued. So the point here is, he triumphed over death, he triumphed over wrath, he triumphed over sin, he triumphed over hell, and he is risen, he's raised now, and he's installed as king at the right hand of the Almighty, meaning he rules. And the ruling will go on until every little two-bit devil on earth or in hell or flying his little wings trying to insult us in heaven will be under his feet. Now, we know this. I'm not making this up. I'm not drawing out unwarranted inferences from the psalm because we read it in Ephesians 1. Listen. 120. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, whether in this age or in the age to come. Paul is grasping for language to say total authority. Which is why next Sunday's message has its glory and its difficulty. Total authority over terrorists. Total authority over satanic murderous designs. Total authority over structures of buildings. The early church had a very high view of the exalted Christ. Listen to it again in 1 Peter 3.22. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So when you hear right hand in the New Testament, Jesus at the right hand, hear rule and authority, and hear over every dominion and angel and name and authority and power imaginable. This is all about your security, folks. This is about massive security for merciful service through many sufferings. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go get in Satan's face. Go to the dark place. Go to the hard city. Go to the place where there's 700 million gods and so much darkness in the air. You can hardly breathe a prayer. Go there. I rule over India. That's what this text is about. One last one. Finally, know him as the intercessor between you and God the Father. Verse 34 ends, who also intercedes for us. Go between. Advocate, 1 John 2, 1. Advocate. Mediator, 1 Timothy 2, 25. We might be prone to ask here, 
Well, if the ground of our forgiveness and justification was so completely wrought and purchased and bought at Calvary, why do we need an advocate? Why do we need an intercessor? Wasn't it done? And my answer to that is this. Today in heaven, this very minute, isn't this glorious to think about? This very moment, Jesus does nothing to add to the ground and purchase price of our redemption. That's finished. The ground is laid. The purchase is made. He adds nothing to it. He can't add nothing to it. It was perfect. The Father raised him from the dead. All he does is represent in his person what he achieved. So that as the Father beholds the wounds of the Son, as it were, he knows it's, it's signified, it's represented. There's a, a glorious, eternal emblem of the finished work. And there's this constant reminder. And the most practical way you experience this is when you pray in Jesus' name. Why do you pray in Jesus' name? Why do we end prayers in Jesus' name? Amen. There's one reason. We have absolutely no right and no warrant to the Father, to go to the Father, to ask the Father, except for Jesus. He's our warrant. He's our right. He's our payment. He's our purchase. He's the fullness of everything that God ever required of us. And now we go to him and we say, in your name, Father, may I have help, please? Help in my marriage, help with my children, help in witness, help to keep on my path towards India. It is finished. And the finished work is represented and applied to us moment by moment. In heaven, Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me close like this. This is very personal, and it was written by John Murray about the intercession of Jesus. Let me read you what Murray wrote. So you can see how crucial it is to know Jesus in these four snapshots. Murray wrote, Nothing serves to verify the intimacy and constancy of the Redeemer's preoccupation with the security of his people. Now, don't miss those words. The intimacy and the constancy of the Redeemer's preoccupation with our security Nothing assures us of his unchanging love more than the tenderness which his heavenly priesthood bespeaks, particularly as it comes to expression in his intercession for us. Would you take your worship folder and would you stand? The middle verse of, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus has the line... He who died to save his loved ones intercedes for them above. He who called them his own people watches over them in love.
I think it would be good for us to testify aloud with song that we embrace this, rest in this, believe this, are made to feel massive security for merciful service through many suffering. So let's just sing this middle verse. Oh, the... of security that you can enjoy in Christ because he died he was raised he reigns and he intercedes and all the people said Amen